today on Geekdemine Powers. I got to name uh, uh, a snail. <laughs> there is a, a snail. You are listening to Geekdemine Powers, the podcast about people empowered through their geekiness. Welcome back! My name is Guy Hasson and this is Geekdom in Powers. Geekdom in Powers is the podcast that highlights creators and fans in the geek world who do not often get to be highlighted. It's these people, it's us, who make up almost all of the geek world. By talking to each person, by hearing their story, Geekdom in Powers creates a huge, giant, world-sized quilt of the geeks all around the world. Each person is a story, and together we are one story, one huge Geekverse quilt. And I'm really proud we're at episode 36 of the quilt that's beginning to form. The different people who have been uh, in the different types of things they do and the different perspectives they they give us about the geek world is amazing. And it's just the beginning. Today, we are talking to Carla Batayel Estruch, who is a translator and editor at Crononauta. You remember Crononauta from the previous episodes? If not, go back and listen. you know, you can listen afterwards. This is the small Spanish publishers, which publishes only female and non-binary science fiction authors and believes that small publishers can create big changes. In this episode, Carla will talk about their adventures in translation to Spanish, including the snail story you heard in the beginning. Translation of science fiction and fantasy is what keeps the engines of science fiction and fantasy running across the world which in the United States and in the English-speaking world you may not actually get, but everywhere around the world, that's the oil of the engine. People, this is what creates new fans. This is what keeps old fans who are stopped for new books and stories uh, running. The translators have their own stories, their own tales. So that's why we're talking to Carla. They will talk about nine binary science fiction authors, about how the establishment in Spain treats that, about adventures in translating, some of which are really surprising, and many more things. So let's listen to Carla Estruch. Well, I always have been a great reader of science fiction and fantasy. I've been reading fantasy since I was nine years old. Um, But I started translating books in uh, 2017 with Binti by Neri Okorafor. That was the first book that Crononauta published. And they actually offered me the translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually you have to send resumes to publishing houses and they make you a test and so on. But Crononauta write to me first uh, to offer me this. I was already a translator, but I translated mainly uh, series, films and documentaries. And this was my first approach to a literary translation. Translation. So, how did they hear about you? Like, how did they get to you? Because at that time I was uh, uh, organizing um, a visibility project for female authors, mm-hmm. and uh, they I, I was talking a lot about Octavia Butler. And Elena is a big fan of Octavia Butler. I, I, I don't know, they, 
they thought that I was, I, I had the sensibility to translate uh, this kind of books because Cronauta is specialized in science fiction that is that has some approach, uh, that feminist, a feminist approach. And we really connect very quickly because we share a lot of patients. Uh, like for example, we love Octavia Butler and Nedio Corafor, but also um, Ursula Le Guin. And so, I don't know, we, at first it was about business and then we became friends. And then uh, I joined many, them in the- How many years company. ago was that? Four years. Four years ago? Yeah. Okay. And before that, how did you get your hands on uh, science fiction? Like, obviously you um, know English, so did you just find books in English? I, no, I, I started reading uh, Spanish authors. Yeah. Uh, that write young adult. Um, for example, Laura Gallego uh, wrote Memorias de Dune, that now is a Netflix series. Um, a nice Which is it? I, I don't know that. Uh, Laura Gallego, I don't know how translated it in, in English, but it's a Netflix series. Uh, they adapted that uh, uh, in an anime form. Okay. And that was my first fantasy book that I remember. I was 10 years old. Okay. And uh, then I read um, the classics, you know, Asimov, for example. Uh, I, <laughs> I didn't like him a lot, but well, it was like the first thing you encounter in libraries, for example. Mm -hmm. And then in... Uh, 2016, I found a book by Octavia Butler in a um, second-hand bookstore because uh, she was out of print in Spain. And that was the book that opened for me the feminist science fiction uh, that was there. And, uh, and I started reading other authors like uh, um, Jemisin or, or Sarah Gailey, for example. Mm. Okay, and once you started working for and with Coronata, uh, uh, what happened? Like, uh, what did you do there? Um, well, I had already a translated book, so I started sending again resumes. Um, and now that I had some experience, uh, well, other publishing houses started to, um, to take interest in me. For example, I translated All Systems Red by Martha Wells. Mm -hmm. uh, that won the Hugo, the Nebula, the Locus. And I translated a book by Poppy Zeta Bright, that is a horror novel. Um, but mainly I continue to translate for Cleronauta as a freelance translator. And also I work with them as an editor, but that is all for the passion of published books. <laughs> we are really small and we publish like four books per year. What kind of, um, how hard is it to translate uh, <laughs> some of these books? There must be many problems. Yeah, I, it's fantasy, it's science fiction. Uh, you have uh, invented words and in invented worlds 
and you have to um, really understand what what the author is trying to do. For example, when you are reading Nedio Corafor, uh, you think that she has uh, created a lot of things, but really she's uh, taking from Nigerian culture and other cultures from Africa. And not everything is uh, an invention and you have to um, know what is real in our real world and what is something that you have to provide a translation for. Um, but every book is an adventure, really. Uh, for example, in All Since Read by Martha Wells, you have a lot of um, words for different technologies that are really long words that really didn't mean anything, but it's a fancy name for some weapon, for example. And in Nedio Corafor, you have, um, well, she, she likes a lot to, to um, create something and really maybe just uh, use it once and you have to, to know what does that is. And I don't know, I, I, it depends on the, on the book, but I like to, to know everything uh, that is happening. I had one of my first guests on this podcast who was one of the biggest translators of Israeli science fiction, uh, in Israel of science fiction and fantasy. And there was, well, first of all, he says uh, that one of his guiding principles is if the author had been from here, like had spoken this and been able to write in this language, how would he or she be able to do it? Uh, how would they do it? And um, and he got into a lot of trouble with the Tolkienists when he retranslated Lord of the Rings mm -hmm. in a way that he thought it should should have been done originally. And uh, that's his guiding principle. Like he knew that Tolkien knew this kind of myth and not that kind of myth, and and uh, and basically he he tried to find equivalencies in language to those things? Actually, my um, thesis of the master's degree was about Tolkien. Okay. And I compared uh, the translation of the names in Spanish, Catalan, French, and original English. That was supposedly a translation because Tolkien made, like, he, fo he found the, the manuscript in Hobbit language and uh, he translated it into English. Mm -hmm. And you can see how the Catalan translation was really respectful about how Tolkien created the names, and provided um, more creative translations, but the Spanish one um, was more simplistic. If, if for example, an, a name was describing, describing a hobbit who was round and have a, a big belly, uh, they use, for example, just um, a surname that exists actually in Spanish. That was, for example, redondo, that's, that means round. But they doesn't describe uh, how are hobbits because there are names like uh, when hobbits uh, um, walk barefoot and they um, soil their feet, you know, and they are really describing, but in Spanish, you don't get that. And in French, actually, they retranslate 
the books for uh, Canada, I think. And it was really interesting what were they doing because it was most it was a, a really creative approach and the first translation in French was more traditional. How many how many languages do you speak? Catalan, Spanish, uh, French, and English. That's a lot. Do you know just we call this? Do you know the book The Languages of Pau by Jack Vance? Yeah, I. Actually, have it, but I didn't read it yet. <laughs> you haven't read it yet. Do you know the basic yeah. premise? It's it's like people. It's I think it says so on the back, so it's okay to say it. Like it's not a spoiler. Uh, it's about people who know. It's like a, a people who know about seventy languages, so they are able to insert. The, they go to various planets or whatever societies and they insert new worlds because they have fluidity of thought because they have many uh, ways to think and they insert new idea, ideas into languages in order to manipulate the politics of that uh, place. Mm, it's really interesting. I actually, uh, my head is a mess sometimes, so I don't know if I am speaking in English, Spanish or Catalan, because my mother tongue actually is Catalan, but I translate into Spanish because I started, I started talking Catalan, but I started reading Spanish and the television was in Spanish mostly. So all the writing and all the reading was in Spanish uh, and I am most fluent in Spanish in the right, in the right form. But I, I'm fluent in Catalan, actually. I think in Catalan. I can tell you, I, I learned in school in Israel, in Hebrew. I learned Arabic for three years. And I learned, I don't speak it, I forgot everything. But I learned French in an American school. So while I don't translate English to Hebrew or Hebrew to English, I translate Arabic to Hebrew and French to English. <laughs> because that's how I learned it. Um, <laughs> Okay, it's it's a lot. It's it's there are a lot of complications because of uh, translations, and sometimes you have to translate the um, the society itself, and not just you know the some things are just known in that other place that are not known here, or the slang, or you know, uh, what do you do when that happens? You have to look at the context mostly. For example. In Spanish, you have two forms of you, the one that is more formal, usted, and one that is more informal, too. Uh, but the usted is disappearing because it's, it's what you use for older people or for your parents sometimes. Um, but it's something that um, still exists, obviously. So, for example, if you have a book in English that uses you with... Uh, Older woman, you have to use usted, but it's something that you have to know because it's your culture, not because you see it really in the book. Mm -hmm. And it's something that you would do in your own language. So you have to know it. And um, I don't know, um, well, <laughs> I, I'm gonna talk a lot about Nedio Corafor because I have translated seven books written by her, but um, she actually um, writes uh, uh, from a perspective that, that, that is uh, different from mine, and that is uh, Nigerian, but also um, 
from the United States. And um, I actually, I had to read a lot about uh, um, Nigerian culture because uh, it was um, alien for me. Uh, but um, Nadia Okorafor discovered me a, a lot of things. And, uh, and now, I don't know, I, I, I feel at ease translating, translating that kind of things. Um, that's all. <laughs> I can, I can, um, I can tell you, like in 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 speaking of language, uh, in Israel, there is a very strange experiment happening with the language. I think that it doesn't happen anywhere because the original language was is thousands of years old. The Bible was written in Hebrew, and then there was uh, uh, an exodus, and uh, no one spoke Hebrew. There were just the books and the language froze and they spoke various languages of the place and they also invented Yiddish and uh, uh, Ladino. And then when they came back a bit more than 100 years to Israel, which is Palestine at the time, um, they basically had to revive the language. They took all the old language and invented new words to fit uh, the thing. So it's it's a very it's it's a language that teeters on uh, on both being very ancient and being very very new and sometimes too new. It's very strange. In, well, in Catalan, happened something like that, but not uh, not well. We have the dictatorship by Franco, and uh, they forbid uh, to speak Catalan during uh, 30, 40 years. Yeah. And uh, when that ended, um, they had to reinvent the spoken uh, language. People talk it in, in their homes, but they didn't write it freely. Mm -hmm. And they had to, to come up with uh, the grammar and how to write it. And actually, there are different territories, and they speak different Catalan types of language. And they have to make a lot of rules for every territory. So it was, I don't know, you have to take uh, your language and make it live at the yeah. end. So a blip of 30, 40 years meant that suddenly, because people couldn't speak with each other, but only with themselves at home, the different regions developed completely different dialects of Catalan. The dialects existed because of the, um, Books are a period because in in the Middle Ages, okay. Uh, but uh, the Arabs uh, conquered Spain, and um, then the Christians tried to reconquer it, and uh, they little by little they were gaining territory, okay. And uh, now, for example, in my territory that is Valencia, uh, you have different words, more influence from the Arab than in the in Barcelona, for example. And it was something that happened in the Middle Ages. But when, um, well, in the 70s, when you had to um, create the rules for grammar and everything, you had to differ the difference between this kind, these two of things. But Barcelona prevailed, for example. Mm -hmm. And the norm is from Barcelona. But 
when you are in Valencia and you are speaking your dialect, uh, it's really different. It sounds different. It has different words, but it's the same language. We can understand each other, but um, you have also to to um, to sustain your dialect. Yeah. Well, so it happened. Yeah, I speak about Catalan, but in Galicia this happened, and in in uh, the base country this happened. Uh, Spanish is the official language, but there are co-official languages. Uh, but there are some movements that don't like the co-official languages and they try to erase them from the schools, for example. Okay. And that was like, when did Franco die? Was it early 40 years In ago? 1975. It's like 40. almost 50 years ago. Yeah. And have the languages called uh, coalesce sense? Like... The different uh, dialects, have they come together or are they still different? They came together on the paper, but some people like it more than others. And there are some tensions, you mm. know. So, for example, uh, I can translate into my dialect, uh, the Valencian one, but I can translate into the Barcelona one because the, if it's a film, for example, and you have to use some colloquial expressions. I know my colloquial expressions, but I don't know the Barcelona expression, mm. you know? But yeah. the grammar at the end is really similar, uh, but it's uh, when you reduce it to the colloquial form, it's when everything changes more, you know? Mm -hmm. Okay. And okay, I, I have just one question about translation, then I move on to other things. But do you have any like stories or special incidents or about translations? Uh, yeah. Yeah. On your face, yeah. Last month, I discovered a major mistake in the plot of the book I was translating. Like a mistake in the plot? Yeah. Okay. The, um, in the story, uh, there was a sister and a brother. And the brother told the sister, uh, we are going to marry to other people uh, because you need a husband and I need a wife, okay? And in the next chapter, the brother was actually married to a woman and has been married for years. Okay. <laughs> it was really two sentences, but uh, it, was, uh, um, it wasn't coherent. So we talked to the literary agent and uh, they give us permission to erase these two sentences. And did they also erase it from the original? No? I don't think so. I, actually, it was the third book in a series and they uh, oh. just uh, launched the omnibus. And I don't know if they got that mistake. Okay. But translation. The fans will catch it for sure. I don't know. I don't know. But translators see it all. If you have one mistake, we are going to see it. And if it's something easy, like you actually in change the name of some character, it's, it's easy. You can change it back. Mm -hmm. But something like what was major, it was actually erasing two sentences. You can't do that. You yeah. have to um, 
say it to the proprietor mm -hmm. of the of the rights. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anything else that's like uh, interesting, crazy, unlikely? Um, I got to name uh, uh, a snail. <laughs> there is a, a snail. Okay. There is a, a snail that exists only in Australia. Oh. And it, it has a common name in English. And it has uh, its Latin name that is really long and strange, okay? But it doesn't have a name in Spanish. And uh, it was, uh, well, it was in a book by Nedio Corafor, and she actually pues, translated the, the, the snail into Africa. And they call it in the common name that was, don't remember now, but I don't know clock something because it has it is bioluminescent and everything and um, we had to come with a name in spanish and it's that a real is, snail it's not an invention yeah it's real it's real how can it not have a name okay because we don't have it in spain but it we don't have kangaroos in, in yeah I, it was a recent discovery recent like in the last 10 20 years and it's like uh, the only bioluminescent snail in uh, fresh water, I think, or something like that. It's something a little bit strange. But Nedio Corafor likes a lot of things about bugs and and everything. And we had to name it, and we had a lot of ideas. And actually, it became a um, glowworm snail. That is sounds strange, but you know that it glows for the name, and that is a snail. In Spanish, it's caracol luciérnaga. The scientific community don't know that we have a name actually for the snail, but maybe I have to patent that or something. I don't know. That's interesting. Uh, you, you just, I just remembered, actually, my father got to name a spider. A spider? Yes, I, uh, he, he discovered a spider that hasn't been discovered yet. And he sent it, you know, to a special spider person uh, who said, yeah, this is a completely new spider that we don't know anything about. Uh, so you get to name it. And well, my father's name is Oren. So he called it Orenus some, uh, something else. In so it's how he turned his name into Latin and then gave it also Latin. Wow. <laughs> so it doesn't have a name in Spanish. It doesn't. So, That's right. No one has ever heard of it. It just exists. As far as we know, it only exists on one hill and it's a completely new type of us. But it's, if something, if someone decides to put it in a story, we need a name in Spanish. That's right. So we have to create it. But it has a Latin name. Yeah, but Latin name doesn't come naturally when you are speaking in, mm -hmm. in the book. You don't, well, you can say the Latin name, but if you don't use it in the book, you can't actually use it in the translation, in the translation, you know, mm -hmm. because it's a really long word and you don't say it every day. You need a word that, that you say every day. Mm. Now that I think about it. I think no language except Latin has a name for that spider because no one's ever used it 
in a center, like except my father who talks about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do have a, I just remember there was, um, I think it was Dale Gregory. No, it was uh, an author who was a guest here in uh, one of the conventions. And he said once he's American and they translated his book into, in this case, I think Polish. And he found out that he can't read Polish, but you know, like in the middle of the, in, in the, they, they put ads inside his, like commercials inside his book. Like they have to go and there's no time. Okay, but let's just take a minute and eat this kind of soup, you know, like, uh, which he didn't write. They just put in an ad for soup inside in the middle. And then in the end, he, he like finishes everything, but they added a line until next time or something like that. It's something that meant that it was in the end. Which is crazy. When you sign, when you buy the the rights for a book, they usually put a paragraph about don't insert publicity in the book. You know, yes, some agencies do because every agency has its own uh, contract form and and so on. But uh, uh, you usually have that that little paragraph that I didn't understand the reason of it, but now I do. <laughs> oh, there you go. Apparently it was a thing. Um, so let's move on to other things. While you're in, uh, while you're in Coronauta, and I saw uh, Elena sent me an article of yours uh, about non-binary uh, authors in science fiction and fantasy. Can you talk a little it could be about them, but it could also be about trends. Like, who do you see? What do you see uh, as trends in, in authors and in stories and books? Well, I started uh, the first author that was non-binary, and I knew it, was Sarah Gailey. And I read um, one of her books, one of their books, and it was about um, Ukrainian about hippopotamus in in uh, United States but one of the main characters was uh, was non-binary and it was the first time I read about it in English and in any language and then I started to see more people in social media that were non-binary and I started to read about it and I read more books about Sarah Gailey I read uh, and the books by Neon Young, and at the end, I got to translate them, you know? For example, well, River Solomon is... En las profundidades, the deep. Oh, the deep. Okay. That is actually based on a, on a song, which, you know. And uh, I translated uh, this book by Sarah Gailey, that actually talk about queer identity, and uh, and uh, it's the last book Pronauta published. And uh, what, what, when I, what does the name mean? The name of the book? Uh, upright women wanted in English. Um, again. Up, upright women wanted. Okay. And when I started translating it, uh, and I have read everything by Sarah Gailey and I actually look up to 
today because I don't know, it was the first time I discovered a non-binary character and I related to them. And then last year I started translating the books by Neon Young. Neon Black. Young, Las Mareas, what is the name? Las Mareas Negras del Cielo, that is uh, the Black Tides of Heaven. Uh, it's fantasy, but in this book, when you're born, you don't have a gender and you chose mm -hmm. it when you are uh, a teenager. But you only can choose between male and female. Uh, there aren't uh, any non-binary adults. But in the following books, because this is a series, uh, you discover a character that is adult and non-binary. And people, uh, when they appear in the book, people understand that they are actually non-binary too. And they start using the pronouns they and them for uh, adult people. Mm -hmm. And in Spanish, it was really, this was like not the first book written in um, non-binary, but uh, a lot of people start uh, reading it and discover that the non-binary language in, in Spanish is not so different and they can read it and they can use it. And it was really something important here. And it was the first time I translated a non-binary character. Interesting. And that, that reminds me, there was either in the 90s or the early 2000s, there was a story by Greg Egan, mm -hmm. where the people, there were two lovers, and there was some kind of science fiction thing. And basically, they replaced the sexes. So uh, the man became a woman, the woman became a man in a process that took a few uh, months, I think. They lost the genitals, they grew new genitals, and and there was uh, this kind of society where you could just change your gender whenever you want. In that is possessed by Ursula K. Le Guin, mm -hmm. uh, you have it too, but uh, Le Guin told um, later on that uh, she used the, the he pronoun by default because she thought that it was the default gender, but actually she regretted to use it. She because they, they you can choose a gender in, in the dispossessed. Um, but when uh, she was talking about people without gender, she uses the he pronoun. So, so, I, and I also guess there weren't many, like you couldn't just dream up a few options. And I think it was, it was harder to imagine. Uh, it, do you think new translations of her story will? just change that because she she says she she regrets doing it she well uh, i think it would be great because the classics you translate them in the 70s or in the 80s for example and uh, some things are a little bit sketchy in some translator translations you know mm -hmm. uh, for example i translated um a book by james Tiptree. James uh, Alice Beecher. Uh, yeah. And um, it was uh, uh, one new translation and two retranslations. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I, uh, one of the short stories, uh, Houston, Houston, do you read me? 
I had an uh, older version. And I, when I didn't know something, I went to see how they translated it. And there was one word, for example, that I didn't know what was. And in the older translation, they totally miss it. They didn't know what that mean. And they erase it completely. Oh. I couldn't do that. Yes. And the end, I, I went to the deep internet and ended in a German forum. I don't know German, okay. And they were talking about this strange word, word that Tip3 uses in this short story. And the Tip3 invented them because she liked how they sound. So they really didn't mean something specific. They were there because she loved to play with words. And they sounded science fiction like science, yeah. science fiction, you know? So we need new translation for some classics. Uh, here in Spain, you have the translation for the Lord of the Rings, for example, from the 70s. Uh, and um, we discovered some years ago that the translation, the translator, uh, Matilde Horne, uh, didn't receive the um, proper money for the translation and didn't oh. have the rights for her translation. No. So they are actually reprinting this translation for free. She died some years ago, but um, um, her sons or daughters don't receive the money for these books that sold a lot every year, you know? And they don't, um, they don't review them. They, they have reviewed them for little errors and mistakes, but uh, there are some things that need a new translation. For example, the names, because they are—they aren't really what Tolkien meant to be with these names, you know. But just one thing about that: in Spain, do translators get percentages of uh, uh, like usually, usually, yes, there isn't a, a law uh, about that, but That's it's cool. the right thing. I think in Israel, I'm not a translator, but a few times I walked with them, I think they get a one-time fee for translation, and that's it. In, in Spain, in Spain, we translate a lot. Yeah. So um, translation, translators have uh, uh, organizations, and uh, they, their work is to, to demand uh, rights. So actually, the right thing to do is to demand an advance for the translation for the translation and then you perceive a, a percentage when uh, every of every book but maybe it's one percent two percent at maximum you know it's really tiny and maybe you don't see it never mm. but I actually uh, for binti uh, I am um, well, Binti, it's the bestseller of Chrononauta, you know. Yeah. And I actually, I received the, the, the advance money that it was really small because it's a, it's a novella. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, it, sold, it, it sells every month and I, at the end of the year, I, I received the, 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 the rights for the translation. Okay. Cool. 
Um, that's much better than what happens here, for sure. Uh, what, what kind of trends do you see with the new authors, like current authors today that are like, uh, that are talk about or are about non-binary? Well, there are a lot of queer people writing right now about queer characters and uh, mostly in young adults I see it a lot and in adult fiction you are seeing more every month um, and you can see it in, in the, for example, the Hugo Awards um, that uh, there, there has been a major change. Uh, Ten years ago, you the best novel nominees were mostly men and now there aren't men and people because in in the 90s and uh, i don't know the was were established in 1960 something like that oh 50 60 years ago uh, there weren't women and now we have to change that so People are aware and people, I think, are, are reading more consciously. You don't get to read only men now because when you go to libraries and to bookstores, there are more women, but there aren't enough women. And in science fiction and fantasy, I think we are open a new path for queer people. But uh, in, Span in Spain, we aren't translating enough women and enough uh, non-binary authors yet. I think because mm, the non-binary language, mm, some publishing houses are afraid of it because it's not something that the, mm, the academia, the, because we have here uh, La RAE, that is the academia that controls languages and, and reflects the use of the language, but they didn't approve of the non-binary language. So when you are translating uh, non-binary characters, you have to use something that uh, it is not approved by the authorities of the language. And it's a risk, actually. Because in English, you have they in singular, and it is actually approved that you don't have an academia, but uh, it is in dictionaries, and people use it. And maybe sometimes there is someone that doesn't like it. and write a column or a tweet about it but in Spanish you to use a word you have to in a translation for example you have to um, provide a source for it and you look to the academia okay. so you have an academy we also have an academy uh, for language like which gives you the official version of the language yeah and uh, I know, at least in our place, the, like, you know, you can't actually force people to, to use certain words, but that means that in official government documents and everything that the government provides, it has to follow the rules of the academy. And sometimes in television today, less so because there are, so, there are more channels than there used to be. Uh, also, people had to speak uh, the correct way. It's the same yeah. here. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Mm, but um, the academy in Spain, uh, it has to reflect also the use of the words and the use of the grammar that people are making right now. 
and they don't want to accept the non-binary language mm -hmm. you know they ha they have positions in, in that they have uh, documents about it and then i they don't like it and they are not going to accept it but the academy is formed by mostly men you know writers journalists and so on and there are five six women so and there aren't any non-binary people of course so mm -hmm. it's going to be a long process yeah, but but literature is a, a it's a way to do that you know if uh, you have to write books with uh, non-binary characters to translate them and little by little you are open the path mm -hmm. to that language to be accepted so the books of chrononauta don't have to follow those rules or they do have to follow those rules, rules of the academy you have to follow the grammar rules, you know, because it's a language and so on. But for non-binary characters, you have to bend that in order to respect that characters and respect the, the intention of the author. Mm. At yeah. the end, it's not something about language. It's something about respect for, for, the, for the people that, write, that wrote the book. Of course. I, I meant, is it illegal? To not use. No, no, it's not. No. They don't going to. They they are not going to forbid the book or uh, make us make us pay a fine or something. No, no, no. no. People oh. are going to criticize it maybe in Twitter, but that's all. Yeah. Okay. And in science fiction, you can always invent books. Yeah. Um, and you have a good excuse to do it. Uh, okay. Is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to cover? I don't know. Are you curious I, about something? No, I, I always no. I asked the stuff I was curious about. So, uh, thank you very much for your time for the stories, and uh, thanks, thanks a lot. I hope you well. I recommend. I lost mm -hmm. it here. Uh, if you are curious about non-binary characters and yes. so on, this one by Neon Yarp, yeah. Neon Yang, uh, the Black Ties of Heaven. Mm -hmm because here in Spain has been a revolution uh, and people uh, at first they were a little bit concerned because they haven't read something like that but they like it a lot and find that book. it exists in English right yeah yeah it's originally it. written in English oh, yeah. so it's a start Thank you so much to Carla. You can find the links to the homepage and Twitter in the show notes. Now, next time, because there's always a next time, we go to the other side of the ocean, back to the United States, where we talk with an author, a publisher, and an entrepreneur who is completely different from anything we've seen before, and perhaps from anything you've seen before in general. So, what did you think about this episode? Email me at guy.hasson at geekdomimpowers.com. The website is geekdomimpowers.com. On Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, we're at geekdomimpowers. Uh, and if you want to check out my other podcast, The Squash Buckler Diaries, which is an experiment in epic fantasy, feel free to check it out. The Squash Buckler Diaries. I will see you next time. And for now, have an empowered day.